Welcome to the audio podcast for the main service of Northridge Church. Our hope is that this will be a tool that blesses and challenges you in your walk with Jesus. If you want to learn more about Northridge Church, you can visit us at nrchurch.ca or join us on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. Until we meet, be blessed and enjoy the word for today. Okay, as you're having a seat, I... You know what, my prayer is that 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 song we just sang would be the anthem kind of ringing in the back of your minds throughout today's message. Uh, What a perfect direction of our praise and of our, of our focus. Uh, we're going to talk about how Jesus really is the, the, the only answer to the things that we're going to be discussing about today. So beautiful. Um, as we normally do. Oh, by the way, first of all, who is from the farthest? I heard Kitimat. Anybody from farther than Kitimat? Where are you from? Edmonton. Okay, that's farther than Kitimat. Hey, twinsies. We found two Kitimats as well. Who's from farther? I know. Winnipeg. Okay, Carol. Uh, Okay, Oshawa, I think, is is winning right now. Yeah. Quebec. Oh, oh, here we go. Here we go. Tony is going to steal a show. Vietnam. Vietnam. Okay, Andy, which is farther, Vietnam or New Zealand? Okay, so there you go. You guys can fight over that. I I don't have my GPS working right now, but um, all right. As we normally do, we're going to transition into a time of prayer. Today we're going to be praying for uh, Partner Ministry Celebrate Recovery. And uh, some of you, many of you hopefully, are familiar with what Celebrate Recovery is doing both locally and around the world. And so for those of you who are not uh, with us all the time, just so you know what we like to do is, is this is a time we want to activate you as prayers. All right? So it, this is on you. We're, we want you to be praying over this ministry, Celebrate Recovery. Uh, and if you're bold enough and you feel stirred, uh, please stand where you're at and pray out loud, loud enough that we can all hear you and pray along with you. And then I'll close in prayer. All right, so let's pray. Father, we thank you, and we celebrate alongside you what, what you're doing in the hearts and lives of so many people with hurts, hang-ups, and, and habits that, that need your intervention. And we thank you for the ministry of Celebrate Recovery. We thank you for uh, my father-in-law, Barry and Carol, leading the local group here in Maple Ridge. And we pray for Celebrate Recovery as a whole, that you would just bless that ministry and see more and more people ushered into your kingdom because they met Jesus through this program. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. So before we uh, send the, the students off to their class, we've got a couple of announcements. And these are important. The first one is really important because it could be embarrassing if you don't listen. Next week is Country Fest. You may have seen the signs around town. And so every year, this is our 15th year doing this, we gather with the church in at the fair at Country Fest. So we will not be here at 10 o'clock. Next week, we will be at the Albion Fairgrounds for Country First, Country First, Country Fest, Church at the Fair. Our very own Alberto from the Spanish service will be translating. So it will be a, the first time we've ever had a bilingual service. And, so, and it's going to be uh, Pastor Rick from Salvation Army who's bringing the word, and, and I don't know if he's sharing his, his story or if he's a uh, teacher for the Bible, but um, you won't want to miss that. He's um, a dynamic speaker, an inc- incredible story. Now, the following week, and um, I'm going to delve into the world of social media and remind us of this, but August 6th, it's going to be a Timbit Sunday. 
insert oohs and ahs. Uh, in the, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Timbit Sunday. Uh, and so we will have mouthful and hearts full uh, next Sunday. Um, and I'm very excited about that. Uh, also, yes, also... The Spanish service is doing their, we've kind of gone through our fundraising season. The Spanish service is doing their bit of fundraising for uh, summer camps. And they're going to be selling tacos by donation as lunch on the way out. If you've ever been a part of one of our together services and had the Spanish services tacos, uh, be careful of some of the sauces. They are spicy. Okay, but they're, <laughs> they're not. They're, I'm, I'm very British. I'm very mild. But... Um, uh, come with cash, ideally, uh, for a donation, and it's all going to camp, and you will be very, very well fed. So that's the last announcement about that. Um, that's it. So now I want to pray. We're going to receive the offering now. We're going to pray for the offering, pray for our kids, a blessing. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the way you provide. And uh, even the story of provision for getting these kids to camp, Lord, looks like about 28 kids uh, going as campers and as volunteers that were able to play a part in sending because of your inspired generosity and the way you provide for us. And so, Father, we celebrate with you. And right now, as we, as, uh, as some of us uh, give our tithes and offerings, Lord, I pray that um, you would bless that, bless this time. And as well, Father, bless our kids. Uh, bless the ones that are already out, the younger ones who are in their, their classes. Pray for our grade five to sevens who are off to their class. Bless them. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, and so grade five to sevens, without any further ado, you are dismissed. Um, who are they following? Who are they following? Who's their leader? Josh, he's already in the room? Okay, so is there a grade five to seven who knows the way? CJ knows the way. Follow CJ if you're, if you're lost, if you're grade 5 to 7. Taco Day is not next Sunday, but the Sunday after August 6th. I love that question, by the way. Yeah, you me both. All right. At this time, again, as per our summer series, we're calling Stories. It's a lot of S's. Uh, we've got somebody who we're going to interview and hear from them and hear their story. And I've been looking forward to this one for a while. Uh, in just a moment, I'm going to invite Andy Faulkner, who is the first lady of Foursquare. Uh, so I, I, I don't know when that phrase, is that, has that always been a thing, the first lady of Foursquare? Yeah, okay, there you go. But um, no, you're not allowed to come up. Oh, yeah, come up and stand by me. Come on, you can clap for her. I do want to say a couple of things before we sit down and do this. Uh, Andy is a blessing. Andy's an encourager. When you spend time with Andy, you feel better about life. Like, there's more hope in the room and in the world when you spend time with Andy. But she is a special blessing to the wives of pastors. And uh, I'm going to not cry, and I'm going to say this first part, that um, there, I, I'm just learning that uh, pastoring is hard on pastors' wives. Uh, a lot of times, Carolee knows my calendar appointment where I'm going to have a hard conversation, uh, but she doesn't get to hear all the details because they're not necessarily mine to share. But so she has the weight sometimes, and, and, and there are a lot of Foursquare pastors, and, and some of them are maybe Foursquare husbands that your uh, pastor's husbands you're dealing with as well, but uh, she is a special blessing, I know, to my wife and to wives around the country. So we love her, and we invite you to sit down, grab the microphone, and we're going to hear from your story. All right. Good morning, everyone. Does she have power? 
There we go. Testing. There we go. Testing. Testing. Good morning, everybody. <laughs> so I've, again, prepared Andy with the three very vague questions, but she could take it to a whole new level. She's got lots of stories to tell. So the first question is, what was life like for you before Jesus? You know, I was really nervous <laughs> about coming up here. Um, my life before Jesus. Uh, right. Where do I go? Um, I was brought up in Asia, born in Africa, in uh, Ghana, and uh, I had a lovely, happy childhood um, until I was about nine. Um, I did not know God. I did not know uh, anything about Jesus. Um, brought up in Asia. Uh, I knew about Buddha. I knew about Muhammad. I knew of Jesus, but didn't really have any reference to any of those. So um, anyway, so at nine, um, age nine, I was sent off to boarding school, um, which has been my journey, uh, getting over that, <laughs> because it was not very good. Um, it was a Catholic boarding school. So that was my first introduction um, to God. And the introduction wasn't very healthy, I must say. Um, maybe for others that coming out of the Catholic Church, it was a good experience for you. It was not for me. Um, I was uh, put in the school with nuns who had never had children. Um, it was not a, a great um, place to, uh, for a nine-year-old child to be. And I learned all about the God that they worshipped. And God was to them um, wielding a stick most of the time. So you go to confession as a nine-year-old child, bless me, Father, for I have sinned. Not sure what sin was, but anyway, God forgive me anyway. So I began to develop a real fear of this God. I knew all about Mary and Joseph and all the saints and all their superpowers, um, but not about the Jesus that um, I know now. So. And I was there from nine to when I was 15. So they're very formative years. That's so interesting. I did not know what your time in Africa, and I desperately want to know more, but let's stay on the rails here. Yep. Uh, so this is, you, you're talking about, you, you started to have the, the veil peeled back a little bit about God, maybe not the most uh, accurate portrayal of who God was. But then when it came to meeting Jesus, uh, what's your story? I'm, now I'm riveted. Uh, that's a completely different story. Um, at age uh, 15, my family had decided um, to regather. Um, I have a sister and a brother too, who were also at boarding school, who also um, had problems there. Um, so we ended up in New Zealand, because my mother is a New Zealander. She was born there, she was naturalized, and, and uh, so brought all the family together. After five years, being together as a family was very strange for us. Um, so. I didn't want anything to do with church, with God. I was not interested. I thought, well, this is my this is my out. I'm not at school anymore. I don't have to go through the motions. Therefore, I am not going to church. Um, anyway, I met this young man um, who was part of a youth group, and he would say to me, Andy, come to youth group. Come to youth group. And I, nah, I'm Catholic. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, that was my excuse. No, I don't go to these random youth groups, whatever <laughs> right, youth right. group is. 
anyway, um, fresh out of fresh out of the convent. Uh, anyway, he was very persistent. His name is Simon, and I've known him since. Well, well, I was probably about 16 at that time that I had met him. And uh, one day I kind of went, oh, okay, I'll come. And um, I started hearing about a different God than I had been introduced to. Anyway, time went on, and I, uh, at the end of school, um, I went to a summer camp, and um, so give your money to camp guys because it's <laughs> really yeah, it was a good yeah, yeah little plug there. Um, anyway, I went to camp, which I did not know was a Christian camp. It was helping kids with disabilities ride horses. So I thought, oh, this is cool. So I went with my boyfriend Paul um, at the time, and uh, Paul and I totally were not Christians at all. Don't know how we ended up at the camp, but God had plans. Mm. And that was the first night they introduced all these songs, and I started hearing about the Jesus that I know now, mm. and was introduced um, to Christ through worship. Wow. Um, and then one night, they went around the room in the girls' dorm and said, how did you become a Christian? And I was just dreading them coming to me, but my turn came, and they said, Andy, how did you become a Christian? So they assumed that I was a quiet kind of fearful child, and, um, and I said, I don't know Christ, I don't know him, and I want to know him, and I burst into tears, and they introduced me to Jesus, wow. and from there on in, um, I haven't looked back. Wow, well, I kind of know the beginning of the answer to this question, because you're no longer a quiet, quiet and fearful child, um, and so the question is, what difference do you see that Jesus has made in your life? <laughs> massive. It's been a massive difference. Um, I was baptized at age 21 because my parents said, no, I don't think you need to be baptized. I mean, you know, we're Catholic. Yeah. And, um, and I waited till that time, so did it. As I came out of the water, there was a prophetic word. It's a word spoken um, over me that somebody felt that God was saying, and um, I won't go through the whole prophetic word, but it was, um, courage, strength, and might are in the Lord your God, and you have been called um, and set apart to be, um, to be his servants, basically, wow. how the word went. And um, they said my name means courage, strength, and might. And I kind of, as I, as I heard that, I thought, that is so not me. And the Holy Spirit said, it is so you. It is so you. I have spoken these things over you and received them because that's what I have placed in you. Do you know that my name, Andrea, means a woman of courage, of strength, and of might? <laughs> that's what my name means. I had no idea. Um, but anyway, the difference has just been extraordinary. Um, I have gone from chalk to cheese, from black to white, to all the things. And uh, God has made me bold. Um, at age 24, I got on a plane by myself um, and ended up in Hong Kong um, to work. Just randomly went to Hong Kong to work. And that's where I had met Steve um, through YWAM. And uh, we have gone hand in hand into the great unknown from all these time, almost 40 years now. And uh, man. I am strong. 
I am courageous, I am mighty in my God, Amen. and my life has been totally changed upside down, and it's been a wonderful journey, it's been hard, I won't, I won't lie to you, there's been some really hard moments in um, my life and in our lives together, but uh, you know, we can conquer all, because Christ is so much stronger in us than we are in ourselves, and uh, what we think is not what God says sometimes, yeah. most of the times. When I'm weak, he is strong. When he has spoken things over me of truth, I don't need to listen to the lies anymore. And I just want to encourage you this morning, what does God say of you? Yeah. That is what, they're, they're the voices, that is the voice that you need to be listening to, not your own um, nattering and uh, being afraid of just stepping out. Step out in God, be bold. Um, speak the word, speak your testimony, encourage others around you. Um, that is what we're called to. Wow, thank you so much, Andy. No, before you, I, normally this is a time I'd like to pray for the person we've been interviewing, but I really feel I, I would like for you to pray over us. So you could be bold, pray over us. Amen. Let's pray. Father, I just want to thank you for um, this family here um, that has become our family um, just recently. And Lord, I just want to pray for everybody here who lives in doubt, who walks in doubt, who walks in weakness. God, you have spoken over us individually. You know us so well. You have formed us in our mother's womb. You know what we're created for, and you know what we are made up of. And I just want to pray for each individual here that we would rise up in strength. We would rise up in boldness. God, you are everything to us, and we can look to you and be saved. Lord, we don't need to walk in fear. We don't need to walk in trepidation. For God, you are in us. Your Holy Spirit covers us. You direct us and guide us and lead us and all the things. Father, you are so good, and we just thank you for what we represent of you, Lord. And we thank you for the power of testimony. May we each use the, the stories you have given us and what we've come out of, what we've, what we've done in our lives for your glory, for your purpose, for your kingdom, Lord. May we always keep that in mind. May we always seek the star. May we always seek the cross. May we always seek your name and wear your name well from this time onwards. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you so much, Andy. You have blessed us. You have blessed us. Wow. Um, I don't know if you've noticed or appreciated as much as I have uh, the differences in the stories. Um, Andy's story is very different than some of the other stories we've heard uh, so far this summer. But it's, it's amazing seeing God do his thing in the lives of his children. Okay. Well, we're going to make a hard left or hard right turn. I don't know which direction we're going here. But uh, we're going to go into the Word. And today we're going to be picking up in 1 Kings chapter 19. And we're going to look at the story out of the life of Elijah the prophet. And I told Andy it was perfect that she was um, sharing her story today because we've got another prophet we're going to be talking about here in Elijah. And again, uh, remembering that uh, operating the prophetic today looks a little different than, than before Jesus. Before the time of Jesus, God would speak very selectively. To, to somebody who would um, be known as, broadly, as the voice of God, as a prophet. And Elijah, in this day and age, spoke as the voice of God. 
God would speak to him and Elijah would speak that out. Now, by way of context, I, I should probably tell you what's just happened to Elijah or through Elijah in the chapter before, uh, in 1 Kings chapter 18. But actually, I should probably look back a little bit farther than that as far as setting the cultural context of, of the world he was living in. At that time, there was a king of Israel. So now we're into the time of the kings. Uh, when we were looking at Moses, Israel was governed as a theocracy where God was literally the king of Israel. And he would maneuver his, his people through the prophets. At that time it was Moses and then Joshua and so on and so on until Israel cried out. They wanted to be like their neighbors. They wanted a king. Remember, they, God relented and, and they got Saul, which wasn't any big prize. Um, but later on, through the generations, we get to this king called Ahab. And he was the king of Israel. But Ahab had married this lady named Jezebel. And Jezebel was a Baal worshiper. She worshipped another god, fervently, passionately. And uh, I don't know if you're married, but the voice of your wife, it's a big voice in your life. Am I right, husbands? Yeah. So it, it was similar for Ahab. And Jezreel almost was set up like the minister of faith or spirituality of all of Israel. And at her calling, Israel was worshipping Baal. They were a nation in pagan worship. And Elijah was existing and living and, and active as a prophet in this country, in this nation, uh, almost alone. He was, a, he was a very solitary voice against the worship of this pagan god. And this all kind of came to a head in chapter 18. I should probably also say that earlier uh, a prayer had been had been put in place where there would be no rain. And it had been like over three years in this region where there had been no rain. So that's just an aside that we'll come back to a little bit later. And as I said, everything kind of came to a head where Elijah was fed up with this whole Baal worship thing. And he challenged the prophets of Baal to pretty much a contest. And each side was going to call to their God to bring fire, literal fire down from heaven. And so they set up this challenge. And I, I would imagine almost like in this arena where everybody would gather around. And first they watched the 450 prophets of Baal. And they built their, all, set up all the, the wood for the fire. And then they put their sacrifice on top of that wood. And they were ready to cry out to their God to send fire to consume this offering, this sacrifice. And so they did. And they were crying out. And I can just imagine this twisted form of worship screaming out to the, their Baal. And, and uh, one of my favorite parts is how uh, Elijah started to kind of almost mock them. Not almost mock them. He would mock them. It's like, well, you know what? Maybe try it a little louder. Nothing's happening. Be a little bit, maybe Baal's having a nap. Maybe wherever he is in heaven or whatever you call it, he's having a little sleep. And so scream a little louder. And he's egging him on, but to no avail, no fire came down from heaven. And then again, with the backdrop of water being very precious, Elijah called for the buckets and buckets and buckets of water to be poured over the wood, to just soak the wood. And to soak the offering. And then he cried out to God. And God sent fire. And it consumed the sacrifice. And it was this very visible. Very public demonstration. Of God's 
place in the spiritual kingdom, in, in, that he is Lord over all, that he is the God that everybody should be worshiping. And in that moment, uh, Elijah orchestrated the slaughter, this sounds really horrible, but the slaughter of all 450 prophets of, of Baal, they were wiped out. And so with this, like if you're with me, there's this momentum, this God momentum where there's this very public de demonstration that Baal is not God, that God is God, and that Elijah is his prophet. And so it would stand to reason that you'd be like me and thinking, okay, it, Elijah's stock has never been higher. He, this, he is the guy right now. And it's not even just that he's this great man, but he has chosen the right side. He is serving the one true God. And so with that, um, we're going to go into his story. But before we do, I've got a bit of a, a, a quick warning here. Uh, today we're going to be going into, uh, wandering into a bit of a, a sensitive topic. We're going to be talking about depression. And I, I don't want to present the message today as a quick fix or a formula. This is how you beat depression. This is how you solve the problem of depression. Or this is how depression gets conquered. Because it, it's not as formulaic as that. However, my, my hope and prayer is that you'll be blessed seeing how God ministers to Elijah in his absolute lowest point. So, let's move on. We're going to go to 1 Kings chapter 19. We're going to re begin right in verse 1. Up here we have the ESV version, so I don't know what version you're reading from, but you can read along here in chapter 1, uh, excuse me, chapter 19, verse 1. It goes like this. Ahab told Jezebel, so remember this is the king of Israel, told his wife, who was the Baal worshiper. He told her all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, So may the gods do to me, and more also, if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. She's saying, I'm coming for you. I'm going to kill you. Then he was afraid, and he arose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belonged to Judah, and left his servant there. So, when we look at this first interaction here, Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done. The report came as a huge shock to Jezebel. She thought so much of these priests. Uh, she would have been supporting them from the royal treasury. And, and now they were dead at the hand of Elijah. So instead of her response being, oh my goodness, and, and, and repenting for following false gods... She was more bitter, angry, furious that her God had been exposed and that the one true God had been revealed. And so instead of being moved to repentance and, and to changing her heart, her heart was hardened. She hardened her heart against God and she vowed she was going after Elijah. She vowed to kill him within 24 hours. Now, Elijah's response is interesting. We can't say for certain whether God called him out of the dangerous land that he was in because the world was going to be after him. It was going to be a, um, uh, a is it James Bourne? No, J Jason Bourne type moment where everybody, or, or a John Wick thing where everybody is now going to conspire to go after Elijah and have him killed. 
And we don't know for certain if it's God telling Elijah, you go, get to safety, or if Elijah in his human response ran for his life. But either way, he took off and uh, went about 80 miles on foot to a place called Beersheba, where we pick up in verse 4. He says this, or it says this in verse 4. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree. And he asked that he might die, saying, It is enough now, O Lord. Take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. So in the verse prior, we saw that uh, Elijah left his servant in Beersheba, and then he went another full day's journey into the wilderness. It wasn't enough that he had escaped 80 miles away. He felt he needed to go even into a, a safer place. And looking at where Elijah's at is a tough one. And if we look at him through judgmental eyes, we're like, how could this man who made the rain stop with a prayer and then made it start again just with a, a prayer to God after three and a half years. How could this man, this man who had performed this, and it sounds like Elijah is such a great guy, but we know all glory goes to God, and he's the one who does the things. But Elijah, who has seen God do this through him, accept this offering, burn it very publicly, defeat the prophets of Baal. How could he get to this point of fear and hopelessness. Because where, like I said, his stock should, like it couldn't have possibly been higher. But instead, he feels isolated, alone, and he feels like he's the only one following God. And he is brought to this point of the deepest, darkest, suicidal depression. When Elijah examined what he would say is the apparent failure of his work as a prophet. He instinctively set the blame on his own unworthiness. That's the first part. It was because he was a sinner, just like the rest of his ancestors, that the work seemed to fail. That's, that's how he was feeling about himself. Then we go on in verse 5, it says this. Is that 5? My eyes aren't that good. There you are, verse 5. Yeah, verse 5. And he lay down... And slept under a broom tree. And behold, an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. And he looked, and behold, there was at his head a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. And he ate and drank and lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came again a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. And he arose and ate and drank. And went in the strength of that food 40 days and 40 nights to Horeb, the mount of God. Uh, and I, I think this is something that I might be inserting here in my humanness. But if, if I'm looking, if I'm, if I'm God, which thank goodness for all of us we aren't, I'm not. If I'm God looking at my prophet Elijah, the one who I speak to, he hears my voice clearly. He knows that I'm here, that I am God. And I've just done as God the, the miraculous stopping the rain, starting the rain, bringing the fire. I've done all the things. I've revealed myself to him, Elijah. It 
might be a little bit insulting to me as God that he would now live in fear and, and depression. That he would uh, almost kind of recoil in isolation, literal isolation in the middle of the wilderness. But almost spiritual isolation where it, it's almost as though he loses sight of who he is in God's eyes. And as God, it's not impossible. You talk about that angry God that, that sometimes gets taught. And it would make sense for God to be mad at Elijah. How can you lose faith when I've done all this for you? When I've revealed myself to you so clearly? And yet we see God act in mercy. He is gentle. He is loving. He knows Elijah's heart and he knows what Elijah needs. And so he provides this, this broom tree. Physically speaking, he needed rest and replenishment. And so God gave him rest under this broom tree and provided miraculous food to replenish him physically. He just covered a lot of ground. And then he, he went to sleep again. And then angels woke him up again. And so repeatedly, God is ministering to him where he's at in his low point. He doesn't come in hot and heavy lecturing him about how he's God and that he shouldn't fear. It's out of order that Elijah should fear or feel depressed. He's still God. He's still in control. His will still will be done. But he doesn't come to Elijah that way. He ministers to him in his physical need and then he, he starts to, to, to nourish his soul. And he tells him, he gives him, he gives him a job. I'm sending you, I'm giving this food because I'm sending you on a, a 200 mile, 40 day trip to Mount Horeb. Mount Horeb is also known as Mount Sinai, which many of us will remember from the teachings we've recently done on Moses. This is where God met Moses and this is where God is sending Elijah right now. God did not demand immediate recovery. He allowed the prophet time to recover from his spiritual depression. And if there's something formulaic about the way God ministers to us in our lowest points, I think that might be something to take out of there. Is, is that God is, you know what, sometimes he's got something for us to do, and he will do a miraculous healing in the moment where there will be a touch of God and there can be instantaneous freedom from this bondage of depression. But sometimes God ministers to us on a journey. And in this case, God literally created space for Elijah to have some time to heal, to see the love of God, to be ministered to by God himself. Let's carry on verse 9. It says this, this is after his 200-mile journey to Mount Sinai. There he came to a cave and lodged in it. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. And he said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I've been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. Remember that line. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only am left, and they seek my life to take it away. Uh, first part is just a kind of a, a bit of an aside. He went into a cave. The Hebrew translation is actually the cave. And, and so it's very likely this was the place 
that Moses had his encounter with God at the top of Mount Sinai. And I love God's approach to conversation with Elijah. He asks him a question that he knows the answer to. He asks the question, what are you doing here, Elijah? And again, it's not that God needs an answer to the question. God presents it almost like a, a really good counselor would, where he, he puts the question out there, and the ministry almost comes in, in Elijah's response, in his talking out and speaking the truth of his feelings. And, but God plays the perfect role of, of listener here. What are you doing here, Elijah? It was good for Elijah to speak to the Lord freely. He was invited into conversation with the king of kings. And that allowed him to unburden his heart. And again, I ask you to make note of these words. He says, I've been very zealous for the Lord God of hosts. Or he says, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. I want you, God. I want to be with you. It seemed unfair to Elijah, probably, that a faithful servant of God should be made to suffer like this. Elijah had done what he was supposed to do. He followed God. He had a clear voice from God, and he did what he was supposed to do. He didn't feel, uh, you know how Job had this interaction with friends and with God, and they were saying, well, surely there's some sin in your life, and now you're suffering because of that. And Job is reflecting, he's like, no, that's not what this is. Elijah's in a similar spot where Elijah's like, I have been walking upright. I've been doing what God wanted me to, wanted me to do, and yet I am suffering. I'm suffering at the hands of others where I'm being pursued like the last God follower, God follower on the planet. I'm being pursued to be killed. But honestly, I've arrived at this point where I myself kind of want myself killed. I've lost hope in living. And it doesn't seem fair to Elijah that he's done the right things, but now he's at this point of suffering. And when he says that he alone is left, it should be noted that that was not accurate. But this is something that happens in our, uh, I'm just only starting to uh, learn a little bit about mental health. And, and I'm far from an expert on, on things like depression. But I, I know in my own life that when my mind starts to take over, and I, when I get in my head like that, I can start to feel like, I, I start to isolate and I start to feel like I'm the only person who knows what this is like. I'm the only person who understands what I'm going through. This is unique to me. I am broken. I am lost. And, and this is the perspective that Elijah had. And it wasn't accurate. But it, it reflected how he felt. Um, and even actually back in the confrontation at Mount Carmel, Elijah spoke those words. He says, I alone am left a prophet of the Lord. That was from chapter 18. Discouraging times make God's servants feel more isolated and alone than they are. Again, he says, I, am alo I alone am left, and they seek to take my life. And strangely, we see here, the very reason that Elijah, the reasons Elijah provided were actually important reasons for him to live, for him to remain alive. If he really was the last person to follow God, how much more precious and necessary was he to be used by God? 
The world needed him more than ever if he was genuinely that rare. If he really was the last God follower, then that actually takes away his, his right to lose his life. And obviously God wouldn't let him die because with that would die out the following of God. And it wasn't accurate, and it wasn't even a wise thing to say. Um, Elijah here powerfully showed the unreasonable nature of unbelief and fear. Let's carry on in verse 11. And he said, go out, this is God talking to Elijah, go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before God, before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. We'll talk about that in a second. God knew that what Elijah needed in this moment was a personal encounter with the living God. There was nothing fundamentally wrong with with Elijah's theology, his understanding of God. But he needed an experience. He needed a moment, a, a face-to-face or a, 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 an expression of God in his life. Now, like myself and like many others, we often will look for God in his powerful demonstrations. And I find it interesting, and we could go into a, a, we could delve into a much deeper study of God's approach here, where he demonstrates not just a wind, Sometimes we think of this, this rushing wind. But this is a, rin, a wind that was cracking and, and displacing rocks. God was doing this. He was putting on a show for Elijah. And Elijah's sitting there in the cleft of the rock watching this happen. Then after that, this earthquake. And, I, and I'm guessing an earthquake like I've never experienced before. Shaking the earth. And then the fire. But then he follows with a whisper, a still small voice. And we're going to see that God actually met Elijah in the quiet whisper of a voice instead of an earth shaking, instead of the earth shaking phenomena that had gone before. Let's carry on and see what he says in that still small voice in verse 13. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak and went out and stood in the entrance of the cave. And behold, there came a voice to him and said, what are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And the Lord said to him, Go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. And when you arrive, you shall anoint Hazael to be king over Syria. A couple things happen here again. When... Elijah recognizes God's voice in the whisper. His first instinct is to wrap his face. And it's this posture of humility. that he, He's in the presence of God. And it's, it, I feel like, you know, sometimes you see this thermometer that measures. Actually, we, uh, Carolee and I were watching uh, Welcome to Wrexham last night. And uh, if you know this show, it's about a soccer team. And, and they, they had this meter of the, um, the, the guy who does the play-by-play, a meter of his voice and the, the volume. And it was this joke about how high it went. And if you start to see this, this meter of Elijah's spirit, 
I, I think that this is the moment in the whispering of God that you start to see this build in him, this courage renewed in him. And, and in doing so, he has this realization, this is God, and he, and he humbles himself by wrapping his face. And then God asks him the same question he asked before. He said, what are you doing here, Elijah? And again, it's this invitation to, to, to speak before the king. And Elijah gives him the same response. I've been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. And he goes on to, to say many more things. But he, he, he says the same thing. And in that, it's almost like this bookend of this experience with God. And it's at that point that God starts to give Elijah something new to do. And I don't know if, if Elijah's spiritual health meter had been set to full at that point, or if this was a part of the journey, that the next step was he was to go on his way, anoint Hazael as king over Syria. And I don't know if it says Syria in the text here. Yeah, the king over Syria. So this is not the king of Israel, but he was being commissioned to anoint a king of another country, Hazael. And he gave him something to do. He gave him the next best thing to do. He had comforted him. He had ministered to him. But now it was time where he was going to commission him back into action. And he gave him a very clear and specific task. Let's read on in verse 16. This is still God giving work for Elijah. And Jehu, the son of Nimshi, you shall anoint to be king over Israel. Let me pause there just for a second and uh, talk about how, remember when Israel cried out for their first king, they were given Saul, but Saul was terrible. And so God commissioned Samuel to go out and anoint the next king of Israel. And he found David. Remember he found David, the little shepherd boy. But even though David was anointed, he had not yet been appointed as king of Israel. It wasn't his time to be king yet, but God had set him apart, consecrated him for the job that would still be to come. Similarly, Jehu, or Jehu, was being anointed as the next king of Israel. Um, and Elisha, note the different spelling here. This is not Elijah, this is Elisha, the son of Shaphat, of Abel-Meholah. You shall anoint him... Uh, anoint to be prophet in your place. And the one who escapes from the sword of Hazael shall Jehu put to death. And the one who escapes from the sword of Jehu shall Elisha put to death. Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. Bunch of things happening here. Um, God was setting in motion this new king. Jehu would be the king to succeed uh, the corrupted Ahab and his wife Jezebel. Then Elisha was now identified as Elijah's successor. And I don't know if, how many transferable examples there are in the lives of the people in this room. But to know that something that you're doing of purpose will be carried on well after you're done with it, would be a, a huge burden being dropped from your shoulders. Honestly, the, the things that I'm called to do here, that we're called to do here at Northridge, if, if I started to fear that when I'm old and I can't do it anymore or something happens to me, I get hit by a bus, 
and I can't do anymore. If, if I thought that that would be the end of it, that would be really depressing. And so what a great gift that God has given Elijah in Elisha as an anointed successor as prophet of Israel. And so Elijah would have been buoyed by that. And then we see God's plan to deal with the people that need dealing with. And he refers to the, the people coming and basically dealing with all the people who were following Baal. Justice would be done. Wouldn't you love that word over you today? That anybody who has done anything bad for you, the, the people who drive badly on the road, that justice would be done. And they would be met by God and punished accordingly. Well, this is a part of the blessing the Elijah is being um, receiving here. It says, God would not allow the institutionalized persecution and promotion of idolatry to go unpunished. And he says this, Yet I have reserved 7,000 in Israel, all whose knees have not bowed to Baal. This was a final encouragement to Elijah, who had been walking what he felt like was in isolation. That he was one of a kind. He was the last God follower standing. He says, I've got 7,000 people. 7,000 people who have heard my word as God through you, Elijah. They are following me. They exist. They're out there. And I've reserved, I've set aside those 7,000. And we're going to start something new. And Elijah's being told he's not alone and that his work as a prophet had indeed been fruitful. Again, you might have neighbors and friends and family that you're praying for. And it might feel hopeless and, and fruitless. You might feel like nothing's coming of it. And this is the moment where God reveals your prayers have meant something. The, the interactions, the conversations, the seed sowing or the, the watering that you've been doing, it's working. There are 7,000 people in Israel ready to step up and follow the living God. That was his final encouragement. Uh, I want to invite the worship team up. But as they're coming up, I want you to consider this. And I've said this already, but if God wanted to be offended by Elijah's lack of trust, if, if God wanted to be like put off by Elijah's response to, to all of the miraculous things that he had done, he could have been. He could have been the angry, vengeful God. Instead, God ministered to Elijah. He created a plan that it will, would allow for a time of healing and renewed purpose. Church, we're going to do something we don't always do. But there are probably people in this room who need a time of healing and renewed purpose. I want you to know God is here for you right now as well. And we want to make room for God to minister to you even during this time of, of response worship. Uh, so if you're First of all, I, I would encourage you, as we sing this song, especially at the beginning of the song, spend some time. Bring it to him. That, this is the beauty of life after Jesus. We can, we can have these conversations with God one-on-one. -on -one. We don't need to go through, a, uh, well, we do go through an, a, 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 medi a mediary. In, mediary, is that the word I'm looking for? Somebody, somebody in between? What's the word? Intermediary, we go through Jesus to talk to God. 
Jesus is always the answer. Um, <laughs> and, and, and so we can talk to God because we have access through Jesus. But if you're wanting somebody to come alongside and pray for you, as we're praying, I know sometimes we lift our hands, but be purposeful about lifting one hand and saying, look, I want prayer. I want somebody to come and pray for me. And, and maybe they'll ask you, how can I pray for you? What is it you need prayer for? And, and we want to create a, a moment and a space where you can be prayed over. Now here's the thing. This song is going to kind of maneuver to a spot. And if, I've, if I think we've coordinated and got this right, there's a bridge and a lyric in this song where it says, Come on my soul. And it's this example set by the psalmist who was like frustrated, but then he knew that it was his, his place to cry out to God and that his soul should be worshiping God. And he is actually talking to his own soul. Come on, soul. Let's, let's worship God in this place. And so when you hear it get to that spot, it's probably going to start low and we'll build and we're going to sing it together. I want you to be intentional about talking to your soul, telling your soul to worship the living God. And we'll finish with that. And at the end, I will share a blessing with you. So again, this is a time where you can be praying one-on-one. You can be singing along with the worship team. Or if you're bold enough, put your hand up. Or, or go to somebody and say, I'd like prayer. And, and let them know what you want prayer for. And, and we'll finish in song together. All right? Let's do that. Thank you, worship team. Thank you, Jesus. Uh, have a quick seat. I, I want to create a tie-in here between the, the lyrics and, and something that's been said already today. Um, I, I, I'm trying to remember what the lyric was, but there's this humility in it. Well, yeah, what do I have that's fit for a king? What, what honestly, uh, you know how you've got this kindergarten kid and, and it's Father's Day and what are they going to do? Are they going to go buy you a new iPad? Are they going to go buy you something really cool? No, they're going to make you a paper tie with some poem on the inside. Because that's what they can do. That's what they're capable of doing. And it's cute. And we love it because it's an expression from your kid to you. And it's, it's precious because of that. But in the same way, what do we have to offer the King of Kings? There is nothing that isn't already His. Everything is subject to him in the natural realm, in the spiritual realm. It's all his. What do we have to offer him? And in the same way, or maybe in, in uh, there's a, a funny juxtaposition here where God speaks to Elijah and he speaks to us in our humility as our face is covered, seeing that we're in front of the living God. In that humility, he tells us that we have value. He tells us that we have purpose. He gives us boldness. And it's not because we're good. It's not because we can make a really good paper tie for him. It's because he loves us and he chooses to work with us and through us. It's amazing to me that the king of kings would give a rip about a broken person like me. A broken person like you. And yet he does. He loves to work through his children and use them for his purpose. Let me finish with this blessing, and we'll put up here on the screen. It's the last slide of the, of, the, of the message here. 
And it says this, May the all-knowing God minister to you in any anxiety or depression. May He give you rest and renew His purpose for you in a way that is clear and hope-giving. Church, we love you. We won't see you next week. Uh, but we'll be thinking of you, praying about you. Hope to see you at Country Fest. Uh, until then, be blessed. And, and I don't want to miss this opportunity, actually. I'd, let's add this one thing on. If you want prayer, if there's more to be done, if there's some more heavy lifting to be done and you, and you need prayer, I know I'll be up here. And I think some people might be able to make themselves available to pray with you. If you have gum, I'd love some because I have terrible breath and I don't want to hurt you that way. Um, but if you're ready to go, be blessed and we'll see you next week. Thank you for joining us for our main service. If you want to learn more about Northridge Church, or if you just want to talk to someone about what you've heard on this podcast, please email us at info at nrchurch.ca. We'd love to get to know you better. Until then, be safe and be blessed.